All right, welcome to Pathological Evolution, a new series I'm holding with Raven Connolly, where we're trying to bring together two, I think, huge concepts in science and psychology. Um, the concept of evolution, obviously an idea forwarded in the 19th century by thinkers like Charles Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace. Uh, the idea that we can understand change of form through processes like natural selection. And on the other hand, we have the concept of, of pathos or pathology, which is a central concept in Freudian psychology, what became psychoanalysis, and the idea that our egos are, um, you know, formed in relationship to unconscious wish fulfillments, and that this creates an enormous tension inside of our personal development. Um, both these revolutions and our understanding of knowledge have you know, been threatening to various fields and also been incorporated in various ways in different fields. Evolution, most famously, is very controversial for religious and metaphysical thinking. Um, pathology and unconscious motivations are actually something that is quite controversial in the sciences and um, provokes a lot of tension between traditional ontologies and what has become something like a psychoanalytic ontology. Um, so we're going to try and put them together. And the reason why we want to put them together is basically because we feel like analyzing our global society today involves understanding what we're calling something like pathological evolution. That is sort of understanding our own unconscious desires. Um, what do we really want? Um, and and when we look at global society today, I mean, what do we, what is the pathos of modern global society? What do people want? You know, what are their unconscious motivations? Um, and finally, how does approaching this topic of pathological evolution allow us to analyze things like gender, class, and race? Um, many of the big tensions in our contemporary society are revolving around these notions, and many big social theories revolve around these notions. Um, and at the same time, many of the analyses of gender, class, and race don't seem to really include pathos as an important dimension of these tensions. So we want to we want to bring uh, this uh, into a higher order dialogue. But before we do, Raven, why don't you introduce yourself and maybe introduce you know what 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 has motivated you in 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 in, in wanting to share this conversation. Absolutely. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Raven uh, Connolly. And I guess the beginning of this for me was studying, well, not the beginning, but when I started to really study evolution in college, I was uh, under the wing of Brett Weinstein and Heather Hang at the Evergreen State College. And it's kind of interesting to think about studying evolution and evolutionary dynamics uh, within the context of what happened at Evergreen in terms of pathology, uh, moving between a social body, uh, kind of spreading uh, through groups of people and creating a great deal of turmoil within, within the institution. I think something that's interesting about that case study, well, at Evergreen, I think it almost highlights the difficulty of thinking about this problem in the sense that we have the kind of enlightenment people in the IDW addressing these issues of race or gender or class from a perspective that doesn't really think about the pathos uh, or the kind of group dynamics as being here to stay uh, and actually part of, part of our deep sense of being human. 
And I think that we can even see that kind of in the commentary um, from, from Brett and Heather. It's very much about these are bad ideas, not so much about who are these, who are these social bodies and like what are the pathological kind of motivations that are going on in these dynamics between different groups. So I think that there's just been a, you know, a series of series of events and a series of ideas that have kind of helped me metabolize the things that have been going on around me um, that have continued to bring back these ideas of particularly of sex, um, of unconscious desire, and also um, you know, evolutionary processes. So that's my interest right now. And I think the the fact of it is like this is an open space. It's very important, I think, uh, to go and find those zones where there hasn't been a lot of exploration already. And this really feels like one of those places. And particularly, we need, we really need some theories that are able to synthesize these worlds, particularly because issues of class and race and gender, they're, they're obviously there. Like pointing those things out is, you can't, you can't just deny their existence. Because they're obviously true, even on a mythic level. There's like a myth belief in these things. So we have to kind of be able to work and come up with better theories as to what's going on and how to move through all of this tension and conflict that exists within the kind of heterosocial uh, existence that we have as postmodern humans. All right. Yeah, I feel like I'm really I feel like it's so interesting that you are coming from the whole evergreen college scandal and, you know, Brett Weinstein and and Heather Hang and, you you know, um, also for, um, you know, the listeners to know, you know, you have an evolutionary background as well, like study, you know, studying evolution with with them. And, and the, you know, for me, their reaction to the SJWs is kind of like a rational enlightenment reaction to the SJWs. Um, it's very logical when you listen to them. Of course, it makes sense. You know, their analysis on some level makes a lot of sense. Um, and, you know, it's very easy to sympathize with what they went through. Um, and at the same time, I always feel with the with the reaction to the SJWs, there is this type of underlying dimension of pathos that is unanalyzed both by SJWs themselves and the sort of enlightenment rational critique of SJWs. Um, so I think that that, you know, the fact that you come from this conflict and the fact that you're motivated by this conflict is so, um, you know, important and maybe even symptomatic of this, of this conversation, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think it's kind of, it's kind of related too. it's like these things, they, events stick on you because they go through your body and they, like it is part of this like pathic body of, of of the human i mean it's it's been really interesting to this is kind of another anecdote but to hear people talk about social breakdown uh how it feels there's a kind of uh energy that people speak of that i, I when i talk to my friends in different countries friends in england uh, you know, people here about the sense of social cohesion breaking into fragmented pieces. And I think that that kind of points at this weird 
shadowy realm where we're not just atomized, disconnected individuals. I think that concept as at the bottom, at the bottom of the ontology to kind of try and work out these larger emergent problems has to has to go. Like you just cannot be operating as if you are your thoughts or you are an individual in order to understand the kind of hyper object of pathos and how it's working out on the level of the social body rather than just on the individual level. And that kind of feeling into the vibe of being like, whoa, there's something really dark and pathological, but also just very, um, a lot of tension, I think, between the concept of the individual and the sense now, as social cohesion is breaking down, suddenly the importance of that sense of belonging is coming forth. You know, it's like we now we realize, oh my God, there were all of these layers, all of these layers of norms and ideas that were just kind of keeping us all moving. And that was not merely instrumental. It, it wasn't just like, oh, now we know how to interact in the grocery store. But it's a deeper kind of thing that actually keeps people feeling stable or like it's almost it's, I think it's, I wouldn't even say that I would say there's a lack of tension there's a lack of tension on certain levels and when you drop into those levels and scramble them suddenly there's a creation of tension in a place that most people hadn't had to feel before and right. that in and of itself the revelation of this zone I, I think, and I wonder how much I wonder how much this is like what was happening in in Europe when they were having all of the social breakdown around you know the transition from mo monarchy to like different kinds of government, um, all of these groups kind of beginning to balkanize. Like that's it's like is it like that you know that feeling of like social cohesion just really breaking down and causing tension in people's bodies. Um, that kind of is like this kind of electric energy. I, you know, it sounds really new age, but I think that this is the this is the point. Is like we need better language to talk about this. We just we need something grounded to talk about. Well, and I think and I think the the place for me to start talking about it is in the phenomenon of the SJWs themselves. They are strongly grounded in group identity you know they don't really conceive of themselves as individuals they see themselves as part of a group and the markers for group that they use are primarily racial and gendered categories um, of identification but also uh, also uh, other categories as well basically it's this desire for group identity um, in a very individualistic very atomized world um, and I think that the enlightenment rational type of person um, is sort of seeing their desire as irrational, is seeing their desire as 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 pathological. And I would say that's correct, but you can't get rid of it. I think that we we have an we have a from our ego's point of view, an irrational pathos, which is stronger than, you know, 
however complex your individual thinking is or however sophisticated your individual thinking is that there's 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 basically a way in which the enlightenment rational consciousness has trouble submitting to the idea that there's something in me that's m somehow more than me and is controlling me in some level and i have to get in touch with that part of me that requires a type of submission and so that that brings me to you know on these on this meta level between you know evolutionary thinking and darwinism and and science and then you have the pathology and the unconscious wishes in in freudian psychoanalysis and that there's been a tension between the two i think because the science not in principle because there's an actual tension necessarily but because scientific egos or rational enlightenment egos have trouble accepting the fact that their egos are being driven by unconscious motivations which are quite dark and which are quite um you know difficult for difficult for a rational cognition to accept you know things like fighting fucking eating you know like just very what might, some might call primitive or primordial drives which are very simple which nonetheless are essential to integrate and work with if you are to actually develop as a social entity mm -hmm. because those those drives those drives are at the same time the foundation of our social order you know eating sex um um and and conflict and conflict management and if those if those drives are not really understood deeply they can sort of take hold of us and 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 grab a hold of 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 rationalizations which um may seem ridiculous but they're they're holding this energy you know mm -hmm. i i think that i think that that is really underlying a lot of the the sjw uh movement in some sense yeah i don't know i don't i don't i don't know if if um i just don't know where to where to go with bringing these two worlds together the mm -hmm. fact that the fact that we are biological entities that evolve and we can rationally understand that and then how do we come up with an ethos or an ethic for that in our our day-to-day -day lives so to speak in our on our, our our larger social life yeah i wonder i wonder if this is kind of jordan peterson's project you know i'm kind of thinking about how he has this mix of kind of like cultural anthropology you know uh history, theology, and Jungian kind of psychoanalysis, uh, where he really emphasizes the, the, the rational mind kind of confronting the monster. Like one of the things that he says quite often is like, you know, you're a monster. <laughs> you're a monster and you're, you're chained to another monster within the context of, of marriage, for example. Um, and it's really interesting because, you know, George Peterson, obviously, he kind of he represents a figure in in the in the wider sphere that is kind of oddly placed in the sense that he is not quite at home with the rationalists like Sam Harris, but he's also not at home with the like you know activist types or the kind of activist activist intellectuals 
who talk about like decolonization or some of these other kinds of, you know, leftist concepts or ideas. And so he's maybe he's kind of more in this, in maybe in this zone, he has his own kind of interpretation of how, and he's, you know, he's very interested in totalitarianism and uh, how groups of people end up essentially shifting to to basically turning on their own families and sending them to the gulags you know like those those types of transformations of a social body and how that does on some level bring you to the question of how does the individual live but not so much as an individual per se and maybe that's actually something he holds on to a little bit too much is this idea of you as an individual maybe that kind of comes out of his you know heroic uh, kind of the glorification of the hero as the as the kind of archetype of of prominence that ought to be emphasized, but it's also kind of a bridge. I, I think, in a sense, thinking of the hero is a way for people who are in a Cartesian, individualistic, highly atomized society to understand themselves within the context of a story that has a position for the individual. The story does not resolve without the individual reassimilating into the social body. Like that, that story, if you follow it through, has no meaning until the hero actually, you know, comes back, comes back and and returns to to the polis to be with with the people. Um, yeah, I guess I'm just kind of riffing on this idea of rotation, <laughs> but. Yeah, well, he 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 is he is an interesting figure, and like when I first encountered Jordan Peterson, the thing that I appreciated the most about him was that the way he was able to navigate both evolutionary ideas—he was fully in the evolutionary universe and thinking through concepts in evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology—and um, at the same time, he was very comfortable with psychoanalysis and very interested in the original ideas of Freud and the development of them with Jung. And I think that that does give him the capacity to analyze religion in a way that, for example, um, the traditional Enlightenment rationalist has trouble with, like some someone like someone like Sam Harris, for example. Um, and I just don't know where that where that brings us in terms of analyzing things like um, class, race, and gender, other than to see them as um, pro. Maybe maybe specifically staying with maybe specifically saying with race and gender, to see them almost like proto-religious ideas or proto-religious motivations, um, to see in them this, you know, because I, I know for me, I grew up in a society which was extremely secular, extremely atheistic, where if you were an intelligent person, um, it was kind of frowned upon and it was kind of seen as, um, you know, beneath you to identify as a religious thinker or to take interest in theological problems. Um, and I think that the consequence of that was that you had a intellectual scaffolding of society that just presumed we could organize as a civilization without religion. Um, and it could be that the SJW, you know, movement was a sort of radical af affirmation of um, 
we need to think in a group-oriented way, or we need to think in a tribe-oriented way, as as misguided as as misguided as it is. But at the same time, there's something really real about it, which is like um, people who are wrestling with problems of race and gender are wrestling with the sight of the body itself, which is something I'm really sympathetic with. They're they're wrestling with this. They're, in some sense, they're wrestling with the unconscious. Um, they're wrestling with the pathological motivations. So, you know, in your view, like what, how are, what are the, what are the types of, you know, what do you think of that analysis and, and what are the types of ways we can open up uncomfortable conversations about, you know, the, 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 the pathological motivations that are um, somehow fundamentally problematic for our social organizations? Sure. I mean, I think you're profoundly right. <laughs> like, like just gesturing towards how people are responding to their bodies as being one of these points of tension, I think is critically important because, I mean, and you can even see it in the language that is uh, used in these groups. Everything is kind of reduced to like in the gender conversation, a lot of reduction to specific organs. Like a woman isn't that's not a that's not a valid concept. It's like a person with a uterus. Like that's the valid concept. Um, things being kind of compartmentalized around specific aspects of the body, uh, like black and brown bodies is another thing that people say quite a lot. Um, and or fixation on specific things like hair, um, the difference between somebody like a white a, those the white woman's hair or a black woman's hair, um, and then especially in like the, the the kind of trans queer community, there's a lot of categorizing of like what's feminine, what's masculine, and how it appears on the body, and that being the definition or the defining features that make you. You know, male or female. Uh, so it's, it's very much kind of the surface of the body and what the what the body represents in social space as a kind of mythic uh, language. And it it is an attempt. I think the unconscious there is, you know, what is emphasized by I think Brett and Heather and even Jordan Peterson, which is the biological, right? Like to to. <laughs> you know, they're like, wait, you have this huge shadow, uh, which is just biology itself, uh, that kind of is behind you. And while you're kind of conceiving of your body as, as like essentially kind of makeup, like an extension of something interior that is deciding, you know, what your body is. And then there's these like hard limits. I think that the hard limits of skin tone in particular, uh, cause this strange kind of tension where you can't just rationally, you can't just decide I'm gonna have black skin or I'm gonna have white skin. And so suddenly it becomes a, an oppression, force of oppression because there is a, something immutable about you. And we don't have the same kind of thing going on in the gender space because the gender space basically is, is much more mutable in the sense that you don't have the hard limit of the body in the same kind of way. Like, I think the limits show up in much more dark personal worlds. 
you know, if you look at like the detransition threads on Reddit, for example, or people who come out with their stories who are like, I tried to change my body from, you know, from, from deciding what I wanted to be and putting it onto the body. But then I realized that this wasn't who I was. And I had to go through this process of basically transforming myself again back into the, the, the figure that I had been before, but I had denied. So there are these limits, but those things aren't as, they're not as obvious. They're actually suppressed, you know? So I think that that's, it, that's a kind of interesting thing there. Yeah, yeah I think, um, so it, so the the main thing that the main thing that really jives with my thinking is this this confrontation with the body as a limit because when we think about the desire of the when we think about the desire of even postmodernism in general it's a desire for social construction it's a desire for that i am a create like that we can create our reality that we can co-create our reality it doesn't have to be you know, wh whatever the thinker we identify, there's like this thread of what we think is reality could be really different. You know, we could, we can create an other reality. So yeah. there's that, so there's a desire there. Um, and at the same time, I feel like where the conversation sort of um, gets derailed is this struggle with the identification of limits like it, and it's this really interesting concept that the only thing we know the only way we can know reality is based on the fact that not everything is possible like 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 you like you can't you can't be and do everything because if because if, <laughs> if the ego could if the ego could do and be everything it would like it 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 really would so 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 the fact that the ego runs into limits and the fact that limits themselves change mm -hmm. um, is problematic for really getting social construction right. Mm -hmm. um, because if you're not identifying limits properly, then you're just going to be constructing a castle in thin air mm -hmm. or a castle on sand. It's not going to have the right foundation. And at the same time, if you're too focused on limitation, you can't see the possibility of difference. Absolutely. Um, so when it comes to things like gender and race as limits, um, I actually think I think I actually think gender is a little bit more of a limit than race. I could be wrong. I could be wrong on this, like, but I'd want to explore this with you. Is like because of course, like, it's possible to get a, a you could get a sex change. But that's actually a really like very few like that's a very psychologically demanding ordeal, um, and and especially at a very vulnerable emotional time in one's life. Um, and I would argue that very few people should actually do that. Although I think that some people should do that if that's really really like you know they really feel they're in the wrong body, um, of course. Um, but it's a really psychologically demanding ordeal to go through that whole process. Um, yeah. Whereas the, whereas the problem of race seems to me to be a problem in the sense that you can't pick your race. Like you're picking an avatar or something like that. Like I'm going to pick this avatar. I'm going to pick this avatar. And like, I want to have this skin color. I want to have, and race is also race is also like not just skin tone, but also like you're saying hair texture, it's facial features that are certain 
you know, certain uh, races have certain identical fa facial features and body types and stuff like this. Um, but it's 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 more to like it's 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 more to me that um, people like people seem to use race as this filter for inferiority and superiority complexes. Yeah. Um, and then when we use race as a filter for inferiority and superiority complexes, we run into huge racial tensions. But I'm not quite sure how much race in itself is problematic because, you know, once you get beyond those kind of neuroses with group identity, inferiority, superiority categories, like the, it, it's, it's not, um, it's not somehow a limit in the way that like having a womb or not having a womb uh, can, can be a, a huge limit, which is hard to deconstruct. So what do you think about this? Um, like, I'm totally open here, but like this limit of gender and race. And like, for me, you know, I feel like it's like the, I feel like it's race, gender, and then the body itself. Yeah. And like the idea and like the idea would be that the body itself is problematic and like mm -hmm. the patho the pathic evolution is like bringing our language to the site of that tension. Yeah, so I mean I I agree with you. I actually do think that sex is a much more difficult limit to transcend. It doesn't what I what I think the communities themselves kind of work around it's like if you look at the um the kind of dyna dynamics that arise i think that there's something going on with people in the queer community or in the kind of trans mercurial community where there's long stretches of kind of dare i say like delusional thinking that goes on for a long time because you can kind of, especially within the concept of gender as a social construction and that being the real level of gender and not sex as being the ground of, of gender and gender itself being mutable uh, and, and shifting and, you know, manipulatable and, and whatnot, is that it leads to people being kind of stuck in these ideas for a long time because the, the limit is, I want to say it's a little bit more hidden. Like you have to kind of dive into yourself in this like deep kind of way. Uh, and I, I guess I'm kind of speaking on some level from personal experience um, is like realizing that you have to come to terms with the sex of your body and that that actually makes you different than the other sex, even though you may want to be like the other sex, you may want to have the qualities of the other sex uh, and you may admire or desire to emulate them in some way, but you have these kind of hard limitations. And I think especially for women, uh, there's a lot of conflict and tension that arises through this recognition of, of being female and that rejection. There's like a desire to reject that. And you could, I mean, you could go over a decade, you know, two decades denying, you know, the reality of your sex. Uh, you can even continue to appear as a woman. You can even continue to identify as a woman, but not actually really accept the body of a woman. 
uh, and the reality of the body of a woman and basically just operate as if you are male. Um, and so I think that there's something weird going on with the gender thing um, that is different in the race thing because the race thing is just so obvious. Like there's something about the way that these groups are functioning that is very much about signifiers that can be perceived like that. Like, it's like, I'm white, <laughs> you're white. You know, we've, you know, able to separate people now. You know, it's very easy to just make these delineations and start to build these categories uh, based on these basically symbolizing or creating symbols out of the physical attributes of people. Um, I, I mean, I think about it in, in many ways, like I wonder about how this responds to the complexity of the world we live in and the mind wanting to compress heuristics and wanting to create basically myths in order to organize all of this complexity. Uh, and that that's something where we reach for these very obvious signifiers like, oh, you look like you're from this race or that race. So I organize myself in this racial hierarchy in relationship to you. And I know that I have X, Y, Z norms that I have to follow when I interact with you because you have the skin color. Um, and then you add the intersectional thing, which is like, and you are queer. So now it's all, you know, it's shifted even more or whatever. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that follows from what you're yeah. saying. Well, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna like spend some time thinking about why, like trying, like maybe as deeply as possible, like try to think why there is this asymmetry, not, not only, so like with the, so we go say, say there's race as a problem in the body, gender is a problem of the body, and then the problem of the body itself. And then when it comes to gender identification of man and woman, it seems to me in my experience that women have a stronger desire to not be women than men have a desire to not be men. I very rarely encounter a man who doesn't want to be a man. It's usually that he's frustrated about something else, but he doesn't want, but he doesn't want to not be a man. Whereas I encounter it far more often that a woman doesn't want, doesn't not so much admit she doesn't want to be a woman, but denies sexual difference so yep. to assert similarity with men and kind of act more masculine. And so and so to me, you know, that is probably coming to the level of it probably is more difficult to be in a woman's body than a than in a man's body on some level, or it represents a certain type of problem that our society hasn't learned how to help. Yeah. Uh, that's what I think. Uh, move through this problem in a way that makes sense in the 21st century. So the mo I mean, the most obvious would be, okay, women can bear children and we reproduce our species through women. And that, that is a particular, that is a particular sexual difference, which we don't spend enough time talking about. And, um, in my experience in gender studies courses or in my experience in, in, in women's studies courses, I've took more gender studies than women's, but I did take a women's studies course, is that the they don't necessarily talk about pregnancy and motherhood 
it's kind of a repressed topic. Um, or like the reality of the egg and the sperm, which is, I know is kind of a, a, a topic that you, you use as a starting point. So, so, you, you know, does that, does that make sense at, at all for, at all for you? Oh yeah. I think that's very accurate. <laughs> I, th I think that that's just the situation uh, yeah. that, that women are in. And I, I think it's, I think it is a matter, at least my theory here is that something actually has changed. And I wonder about this in, in the context of race as well. Like there's something fundamental that has shifted within our notions, within our social norms, within our way of being as a collective that is disruptive, even if it is progressive. And our society kind of creating paths for people to assimilate these tensions, we haven't worked them out yet. And people are reacting. It's interesting, right? Because there's uh, so many reactionary elements to both the right and the left, right? Like this kind of, we want to retreat into these ideas that are that are firm and fixed that we can hide ourselves within in order to not deal with the very deep paradoxes that exist every day in social space and social interaction. And I think probably um, this is very visceral for people who live in and work in like heterosocial environments where there are women coming into to the office, let's say, and have to go into meetings with men. And there are these tensions between, uh, you know, the knowledge, that, the implicit knowledge that everybody has that because the women are there, they have to talk differently. Um, but the women wanting to deny that. So they, if they, if a man does come with maybe let's say a harsh criticism that she would, that he would normally just give to a male coworker, uh, with, you know, without any consideration he gives to a female coworker, she goes back to her desk and just ruminates all day about it. You know, it just runs through her body runs through her mind in this way that is very personal. Whereas, you know, to this, to the, to the man that he would have said that to, he would have been like, oh, okay. And he would have gone off and just dealt with the problem. <laughs> just dealt with the problem. So there are these, there are these, and, and men know this men. Know, I think any man who has like interacted with women enough to have a sense of, of, of their theory of mind knows this about women, that this is just more likely, not that it's, fixed that every woman's going to be like that, but there's just a greater chance that if you say something harsh that is uh, inconsiderate to, to a woman, uh, she probably won't like it, <laughs> you know? And so there's a different kind of etiquette for interacting with women than interacting with men, uh, for men. Well, there, there is, there is that stereotype that, w that, that it's, a, it's, 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 it's a, stere it's a stereotype, which is, which is, is, it's superficial, but it's interesting, and it is like that. Women are women are more personal, particular, and men is more universal, or um, you know, generalize you know more generalizing as a universal, where woman is more taking personal, particular. But like there, you know, I think the interesting point that you're making here is like something I think that Camille Pagley, I know a theorist that you like, makes is this 
you know, we put together the male and the female hierarchies and we assume there's not going to be a problem with that. Like we, we like, like in the traditional world, yeah. like in the traditional world, there is kind of this sexual difference, which is respected by everyone in the society as fundamental yeah. where man has his hierarchy, woman has her hierarchy. Um, and that there are certain functions and tasks, which are male specific and certain functions and tasks that are female specific. Um, but I think that since the emergence of feminism, that clear binary and that clear separation has been broken. And I think that there is there, like, I want to say there is truth in breaking that. Like, I oh, think that totally. there, I think, I think that there is a necessity and there is no reason why women shouldn't be allowed to move into the public sphere fully and express themselves and, 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 you know, build, build a business and, and, and do whatever they want. But at the same time, the conversations about the social pathologies that come involved with combining male and female hierarchies is kind of, we can't talk about that. So I feel like the movement itself is fine, but just that there's a, and, and like, basically that's, I think that's like, maybe that's my principle for all of these things is like, if we're including a logos, which is accepting pathos, what that means is that we have to have uncomfortable conversations. Yeah. Things as it relates to, to very seemingly primitive things like sex, but they're alive and active in our real world. Um, so like there's this movement, which I think is great, which is a movement towards inclusivity of all different genders and all different races. And those identities shouldn't be determining factors for potential, let's say. Um, but doing that and actually doing it well, that's my, that's what I would say is like to think about pathological evolution is to think about how can we do that well? Uh, and to me, that means having conversations about really uncomfortable things. And the ground zero of that is kind of, um, I think it comes up in the SJWs, which is they have a pathos for egalitarianism and yeah. sexuality. Sexuality is not egalitarian, meaning that like sexual access, sexual opportunity, sexual distribution, sexual enjoyment, these are not equally distributed. Uh, and at the same time, if if you reap the benefits of a sexually free society, you're you're not complaining. Um, but if you are on the losing end of this, then it could be that you have to confront a darkness about your motives and your drives, which would be easier to cover up with something more superficial. Yeah. I know that's pretty dark, but. <laughs> I mean, I think egal you hit the nail on the head with the egalitarianism. I think that that is like, I think that was one of my first breaks from the radical left, right? I mean, I was an anarchist, you know, whatever. I still, I, I still pretty much am, but I'm like an anarchist that like recognizes hierarchy. You know, there's like what, like it's just one of these things where if you have a limited amount of resources on some level, 
And I think maybe one of the fundamental ones that we are coping with now is time. Time is this kind of fundamental finitude. And there's a way in which a whole world of differentiation arises out of this finitude of time, where because a certain unit of time has a value to you personally, spending it doom scrolling on Twitter gives you a certain amount of value versus you and I having this conversation now. So there's a density of value per unit time that you're trying to work with uh, in order to live a, a more fulfilling life. And that creates that creates a hierarchy of values, basically. You're like, oh, okay, so I prefer to talk you know, to Cadell than to go onto Twitter and just doom scroll the whole day. Or I would prefer to have children than to live alone because my interactions with my children are going to be so rich and full of meaning that that time that I spend with them is going to be the most essential and precious time that I spend in my entire life. You know, so there's there's a way in which if we if we look or base our reality on this idea that there is finitude, that we have mortality, right? That our lives are not infinite. I think this, we, you were saying this earlier about you can't just be anything you want to be. If that's your fundamental way of approaching the world, you're going to continuously be confused when you run up against limits. And you're going to seek some sort of tool, some sort of exterior object in order to manipulate the conditions of that finitude. And that to me is super pathological. Like that's just insane. It's just insane. It's like divorce from reality in a way that is like totally upside down world. And I think that there's something about that with egalitarianism. It, it's like, without its religious backing, without its like kind of Christian, like everybody has, you know, the possibility to be saved in the eyes of God. You know, everyone is a child of God and that kind of creates this equality between everyone. Without that kind of spiritual backing to this idea of this flat world where everyone is of equal value, I don't see how it's it it works. Like it, it's um in the materialist kind of disenchanted world that people are living in, this idea of egalitarianism begins to break down. And I actually think that we're starting to or maybe not even just starting, but I think that that's one of the, the fault lines or the front lines of, of these fights between the left and the right. And on the right, we have this like crazy, weird stuff going on with like bio-Leninism or these ideas that there are kind of like certain people who are uh, biologically suited for certain types of roles in society and that the rest of us might as well not even try because there's this like, deep biological determinism that exists within social hierarchies. And so you have that, but then on the other hand, you have the same thing going on in the leftist communities where they're saying there are these essential racial categories. So there's these essential things that are stacked in a, in a way that is absolutely uh, immutable. Like black people are absolutely always at the bottom of the social hierarchy. It doesn't matter who you put them next to, that is just, the way that it is. And because they flip the social hierarchy and they say whoever's at the bottom then becomes at the top, then in that sense, black people are always absolutely at the top of the hierarchy when you're living under this system. 
And there's, so there's this really strange way in which hierarchy kind of comes back as this weird specter uh, that can't be worked at directly because there's this value of egalitarianism. Uh <laughs> right. I mean, I, I think, I think you said, I think you said so many things there that are like in need of like deep, deep conversation, but like, so like, you know, it's super weird that the, both the left and the right can ha can have these tendencies to a type of essentially biological determinism or biological essentialism, like even, even the way you were describing, especially the bio-Leninism was kind of like treating humans like ants, you know? Oh, and yeah. I think that, I think like, like, I think that the use of, like as a biological theorist yourself, like I think the eusocial insects are such an interesting example of um, life because they're also super organisms like us. In some sense, we we share what we share in common with the eusocial insects is that we're biological super organisms in some sense. Um, but where we differ from the biological superorganisms is that we are also cultural and symbolic, and so we don't actually fall into pre-programmed social roles um which like because ants do have a genetic determination like their queen is a genetic queen it's not a social queen yeah. like our our queens when we had queens we had queens just like ants had queens have queens but our queens are obviously determined by a social rank and a certain cultural recognition yeah. That, that they're queens. So I think that like whenever we think about communism or attempts to think group group processes, I think we have to watch out for this tendency of certain political extremists to view the human world unconsciously through the lens of the eusocial insect, where like yeah. <laughs> we can be categorized like this which is really dangerous and it's actually something that has been actualized you know like know. like this is actually things that have been have been have been worked through but like when it comes to this you know i think the central problem here that you identified and i agree with is this on the one hand you have egalitarianism this push for like everyone being absolutely equal um and i think of course when it comes to the fact that we are people who are like people who are alive, we all have the same rights in like, it's good that we all have the same rights. So we're equal in that sense, like equal under the law. Yes. Um, but that doesn't mean obviously that we're equal in terms of social value. Yes. Um, social value is like a constantly shifting and changing landscape. Um, and it actually like, it's it's a super difficult topic, social value, because where we got most of our, like, what you could get in the traditional world was like transcendental values, like the value of God and living life under God. That's a social value. Mm -hmm. um, like people got those values from religious institutions mm -hmm. and then you get rid of religious institutions. And that brings us to like the emergence of science and evolutionary thinking. And that was a big hit to the church. That was a big hit to our notion of evolution, right? And then you have us analyzing the psyche and you say, oh, wow, there's a lot of pathological desires there. And now they're just unleashed. Um, and you have, you have basically the reality of confronting 
sexuality. And in sexuality, you can clearly see that there are value hierarchies. Like it's you you almost can't get away from it. It's like it's it's absurd. Like I don't think anyone labors under the delusion that sex is equally distributed. But at the same time, talking about the ways in which sex is unequally distributed is I don't see that conversation anywhere, not in like an honest, open way. Like and, and that I guess is what I'm going towards is like, can we talk? about pathological evolution which is basically talking about you know the way in which we as a society understand come to terms with and manage in some sense our sexual reality and that's and that and i think that conversation would allow the motion that sjw's want in yeah. an actual healthier way it's yeah. kind of like it's it's almost like I'm on their side in some weird way. Like I'm on their I'm on their I'm on their side in the sense of like I see their desire. Like I see your desire, like you have a wish. Yeah. And you want like you want a more equal world. You want a more open world. You want you want the possibilities of the world to come forth in a higher order. Mhm. Mm um, which I'm actually aligned with, mm -hmm. but the but the ways in which they go about it is yes. what I'm not aligned with. And I think I guess what I'm offering here is like is that it, we need to talk about pathos. Yeah. And then and then because that's the ground of our as far as I know, it's the like my logic is it's the ground of our society. Yeah. Because like think about the nuclear family, like. It's a man, traditionally a man, a woman, they have kids. That's fundamentally working with a sexual energy. Mm -hmm. And then that sexual energy becomes difficult to talk about. Mm -hmm. I, I think the reason why is because talking about it can be very disruptive to the order. Yes, totally. Um, so many things. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't want to take us. In, I don't want to take us in too too many threads, but maybe just to like summarize is like you have the egalitarianism, you have the value hierarchy problem, and then you have talking about sex simply, where yeah. where you can't deny that there is differences in distribution, like whether it's talking about you know certain women getting billions of views uh, and other women getting no views. Or if you talk about some men getting all the sexual partners and some men getting no sexual partners. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's like. It almost feels that there's this there's this tension between. Well, you have this layer of like the wish, right, which unfortunately the wish, I think, is the way that it is really brought forth into the kind of rationalizations that people make, it seems, is very flat, almost. Like you take a concept like egalitarianism and you expect that that means that everybody is like literally equal, that like it's all quantified. Like, you know, every single person, every single man in the, in, in the community should be having the same amount of sex. And, you know, we're going to have state-run brothels in order to ensure that that's true. 
you know, like this kind of strange thinking that um, everybody should be allotted the same amount of things. I guess that's the kind of equity concept that it doesn't, you know, there's some people who have too much, they should have less. And there's some people who have too little, they should all, they should have more. And everybody should be existing at this like level of sameness of like flatness. Uh, it's very utilitarian. It's very much about like quantifiable, tangible kind of material things. It's deeply disenchanted. Like it, it, it really does not have, um, I think even the spirit of humanity inside of it, it does feel like this kind of parasite, it's kind of like lodged onto our collective consciousness um, and is trying to like pull the strings and run the show and wreaking havoc in, while doing so. But if you drop into first principles, if you drop into the experience of yourself, the subject that you are in your body, and you just recognize what it is that you have and what how your interactions are going with people, these things become pretty self-evident. Like, and I think that's where the tension lies, really, is like how much of an emphasis these kinds of memes and structures and, and belief systems. But that can be pain. That can be painful for people. It's super painful. It's, it's, crazy. it's self. It's self evident. It's it's a painful self evidence. It's extremely painful. It's it's. I mean, I, I think the analogy of like going through adolescence, you know, like getting all your secondary sex characteristics. Like I think. I, I don't know about it for men, but I think for women, and I think particularly now in this time where like women want to function as if men, there's just this like deep desire to reject your female body or like, I want to go back to being androgynous. Like, I hate this. I hate this energy. I hate this vibe. I don't want this. You just, you can't, what are you going to do about it? Like, it's literally just an act of submission. Okay, it's you know I, I I agree. It isn't that's what I I like this notion that it's an act of submission, like dealing with this energy, and that that's difficult actually for the scientific mind. Yes, it's difficult to undergo this act of submission. That they're very comfortable thinking that they're brilliant abstractors, which most of them are, but it's very difficult saying actually there's this really simple silly thing inside of me which destroys my complex abstraction um and and like for a man like for example when i was 13 and i started to masturbate i was like this is going to be a problem like like this is like this is like this is insane like how am i going to concentrate totally. like this is a big like this is a big transform, but but like I'm just it's it's you know I think man and woman both undergo you know obviously this sexual transformation in puberty, which you don't feel like you can talk to anyone about it, or at least I didn't, and I don't think it's in society that you talk about it, and at the same time it's like overwhelming in terms of your basic level experience, but like it's almost like it's almost like the mystery for me is why it's almost a default assumption that you can't talk about it. Cause I remember the first time I always say my body masturbated me. It was <laughs> like, it was like, um, I knew immediately that I, I, I have to keep this quiet. Yeah. Um, and, 
And so I wonder the limits of social construction. Like, could we have a society where, like, we just talk about sex as if it's just another thing? And from talking about it as just it's another thing, like, and, and kids are kind of systematically brought to an understanding of sexuality at an age-appropriate level, that from that process, um, by the time we do reach genital maturation, it's mm -hmm. like, oh, I can, of course I can talk about this with my, with elders who I respect, you know? And would that alleviate a lot of these problems is like, like, cause one of the problems I feel is like we, we don't have a sexual education that is um, mature and age specific, partially because there's no one really to teach it because the adults don't know what they're doing either. Oh God. I mean, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's so interesting because I think this goes back to something you mentioned earlier, which is like, we have, Darwin on the scene, you know, we have psychoanalysis coming in to reality. We have the upheaval in Europe that basically totally transforms. And people have to really confront the pathos when they think about World War One and World War II, um, <laughs> obviously. And just basically the 20th century in general, you're just like, it, it just, if you just think about it, if you just think about one historical event, it's just like the my I, I find myself my brain just melts. It just the the, melts. the, exa the examples I always give like for like like forcing you to think pathos is uh, Auschwitz, mm -hmm. uh, Rwandan genocide, and uh, American slave trade. Like if you like like if you go deeply into those three events, it's like whoa, what the hell is that? Yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely crazy. Like Indonesia. Um, oh, right, yeah. There was a crazy documentary that was made um, about that, and it really explores this, this like, mythic, pathic aspect of the genocide in Indonesia from a perspective of somebody who actually led, you know, genocidal campaigns. And it really, I think that that's just a specific example of a piece of media that is attempting to get at these get at these like deeper kind of issues. And unfortunately, it's really just a small group of people at this point who I think are really trying to consider these questions from the uh, very deep perspective that is necessary, the very mature perspective that is necessary to actually engage with, the, with just how much calamity, just like how much just like horrible carnage happened in the 20th century. And, uh, how that kind of weighs on us. I mean, it comes up in the context of historical trauma. It comes up in the context of, you know, people wanting to basically suppress these events of, of history. They don't want to talk about them. You know, it's really, it's it's really hard, actually. I, I think as I try to look at it myself, and even I, like, I'm just kind of like, this isn't, this is just like so mind-boggling that. I'm not exactly sure what to do with it. And to think of that on a collective scale, you know, to think about how many people's lives were like touched intimately within their lineage by some of these events and how that ends up creating family dynamics, uh, how that reaches into the body of any given person and how that person then interfaces with 
society. Um, and then how we conceive of these historical events on the level of our mythic reality and how the norms of our interactions suppress these stories uh, in order to just kind of keep things going. And in America, oh my God, in America, we just have so much, so many advertising campaigns about what life is supposed to be like here that it just creates this crazy, crazy tension uh, between what looks like the historical reality of, of let's say, America um, and the world and, and American hegemony and intervention and the advertisement of what America is. And I think that another thing that's strange about this is um, how the advertising has actually worked for people on the left. Like part of their disappointment is that they're not getting what was advertised to them. You know, it's like this, this, they were like, I was promised, I was promised this great life of self-actualization where I wasn't going to have to take on any responsibility and I could just be the celebrity, you know, who everybody's looking at and respects and I could be wealthy, I could, you know, I could have X, Y, Z thing um, and live in this prosperous country uh, that's like bringing all of these great things to the world. And then there's just this darkness of how far, yeah, far away that actually is. Yeah. Um, and I think there's something specific about the American in this context. And then how we basically exported, we basically exported this problem to like the rest of the world and are influencing racial and sexual dynamics people in countries that have completely different histories oh, totally. um, it's 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 insane it's just insane that it even works like I, I don't know maybe you have a theory about that it's like why is this so uh why is this so mesmerizing why is this story so compelling even to people who live in totally different realities as an american it seems like self-evident to me that this would be a kind of problem um but in other countries, it's just, it's kind of mind-blowing. Yeah. I mean, I think you said a lot too. Like, and I think I like what you, I think what, I think what you just, I think what you just said brings us to why this conversation about pathological evolution is important because ultimately it brings us to these big meta problems of, of pathos Um which do have huge political consequences. Um, and it's just like, you know, I guess we should introduce kind of, you know, this idea which might become more prominent in future talks of like the hyper object. Yeah. You know, sex as a hyper object being, you know, a hyper object is basically an object which escapes our normal categories of space and time, which is, is basically too vast um, and too, too enormous to really, um, process as like an object you can isolate and study like a in a reductionist scientific lab or something. And that's actually something that Esther Perel brings up about sex is that one of the problems with sexuality is that it kind of functions as, I don't know where the boundaries of it are. I don't know how to isolate it. I don't know what it is. It's kind of like this elastic thing which escapes any categorization, you know, like, um, and, and what I guess, I'd like to move the conversation into it, which is relevant to what, you know, what you were sort of saying with this mystery of the American dream is like, is the way in which these big, large scale political catastrophes basically 
are involving um, unconscious sexual dynamics potentially. You know, mm -hmm. like that, like uh, I think that's like a whole other beast, like that that we we could tackle. But like for the for like the specific American, you know, dystopia versus the American utopia and the ideal, and people feeling kind of overwhelmed by the negativity of what their real is. Um, I think it's because America has been under, um, you know, this spell or spotlight of being the pinnacle of evolution and the pinnacle of political evolution and the, the pinnacle of world history. And they, and like for the last maybe century, the 20th century, um, they were seen as the place to be. That was where you want to be. That's where all the possibilities can manifest. Yeah. Um, all the rivers run to America. All rivers run to America. Although of course that spotlight is a shifting spotlight. Yeah. Because because the spotlight in the 19th century was probably more on Britain. Yeah. Um in the 18th century, it might have been closer to the Netherlands. If you go back further, it would be, you know, of course, in ancient history, it would be on the Romans and in, in other in other territories, it would be on China or India, right? Persia. So it's, it's, mm -hmm. Persia, it's a shifting spotlight, right? And like, we don't know necessarily what the 21st century spotlight's going to be, um, but it definitely looks to me more multipolar than yeah. the 20th century. Um, and in that sense, that will have a consequence and effect on our global fantasies. Um, because, and, and our pathos basically. Um, but we, I, I want to make the point before we sort of like give some maybe concluding thoughts about this talk is like, um, this, I think the important point you brought up about thinking about those big mega catastrophes of the 20th century is like, it really highlights the illusion of the rationalist enlightenment mind, because it's not that you have the rationalist enlightenment mind that develops these technologies. And then we live in a type of you know, clean utopia where everyone's holding hands and getting along, which is often represented in, you know, visions of what a scientific utopia would be. But it's rather that you gain the capacity for more and more powerful technologies. Um, and with the power of those technologies, you can unleash new hells and horrors just as easily as you can release new heavens and utopias. Um, and that those new powerful technologies are going to be filtered through a very primitive and simple pathic drive. Like, like for example, the archetypal, the archetypal image of the president who has his finger on the button, which could drop an atomic bomb, mm -hmm. right? Like you get the wrong person close to the atomic bomb and like their pathic drive blows up an entire city, mm -hmm. right? As an, as, as an example. So, um, what I think is like, you know, as crazy as World War One was to the early 20th century mind, because basically you had medieval war practices, which were basically being enacted with 20th century advanced technology. Um, and now what I'm thinking is, okay, what about 21st century technology? And what sorts of barbarous craziness, madness could be unleashed? with 21st century weapons of, of whether they're weapons of mass destruction or weapons of mass surveillance or weapons of mass control. Yeah. You know, um, I think that that is um, 
you know, really something for philosophers or people who are thinking today to really dive deeply into. Um, but I just want to like maybe throw it back to you with like sort of, you know, what you what you take what you take away from our our initial conversations on pathological evolution and sort of, you know, some major points maybe that were salient for you. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think first of all, having this conversation, I think, is of actually of vital importance. And I think more people need to do it publicly. And it's an act of leadership. Uh, I think that doing it from a, let's say, left perspective, I think both of us have kind, uh, kind of identified ourselves as being interested in this project that the left ostensibly is committed to, which is to bring forth prosperity to people regardless of their race or class or gender. And there's like kind of an issue of human sovereignty or emancipation um, on the left that I think I see myself aligned with, I think we're aligned with, but there's a bifurcation here about how to actually achieve those goals. And I think there's also kind of an interesting, there's interesting tension between some of the ways in which that project of uh, egalitarianism or the project of emancipation of the human has been maybe reduced to egalitarianism, reduced to equality, reduced to these certain kinds of uh, slogans essentially that uh, causes this bifurcation to happen within people who are interested in these projects. And I think looking at SJWs and their microcosms uh, is a great way of doing kind of case studies on how certain types of pathology, uh, denial of certain kinds of realities, emphasis of other kinds of stories um, creates these strange social dynamics that have these emergent properties within the kind of larger context of society. And I think kind of following from this, there's so many levels of discussion. You know, we, we talk about the kind of contemporary situation. We didn't even get into communication medium or the internet as another way of, <laughs> of kind of uh, placing levels of, of um, meaning within the context of looking at, at pathos. But what do I say, what do I think are some, I think what I'll be chewing on here is the, so much. I think the other thing, okay, so uh, I just wanna keep on adding points. I'm sorry. Um, okay, why don't you say something and I'll come back. Yeah, okay. For 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 me for me it's for me it is kind of like been a long term problem for me to rethink what i mean when i identify as a leftist or if that even makes sense you know of course this for me i guess what i'm trying to articulate is that um in order for me to think leftist politics in a new way i need to bring in this idea of pathological evolution because for me, pathos is kind of the ground upon which our so our societies are built. You know, mm -hmm. the sexual, the the you know, the our, our our violent tendencies, our sexual tendencies, our primitive drives are are really at the ground of 
um, our bodies and our societies. And I feel like difficult conversations about that reality are sometimes abstracted by leftists into utopian visions where those problems can be somehow, you know, avoided or like, you know, obfuscated or not directly confronted. Um, so for me, sort of, it's like part of a larger process of bringing my intellect closer to the body and bringing my intellect closer to thinking problems of, 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 of sexuality and its interface with society. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that this is, if we think about kind of the unleashing of, of the unconscious of our, of our evolutionary process and the, the, the idea that we have these pathological shadows, we have sexual drives, uh, all of these things kind of coming into our view in, in the 20th century. And then on top of that, all of these historical events of kind of in mind boggling magnitude, like we have this task, I think in the 21st century of attempting to integrate all of these things. And I think hopefully we can do that and actually find ourselves in this new world um, of kind of a post, uh, maybe a actually genuinely postmodern reality where we've kind of integrated and dissolved these, these notions that have been hanging on us for, I mean, really for, for millennia. It's like, it really feels like things that have been in the dark have now become exposed for, for all of us to see. And there's a, there's a whole complex of emotions that come of these things being laid bare. And mapping all of that, I think, is maybe the task for us here. And it's definitely a very essential one if we're going to, if we're going to survive. <laughs> all right so and and ending ending on a ending on a dark note i i do i do i do think of course i do i do think that um this does have consequences of of a life and death order um and basically it the consequences are you know whatever whatever society emerges on the other side of this transition um i think the best societies will be those that have been able to bring their rational consciousness to the real of pathos. That's that's kind of like my, that's kind of like my driving. That's like my driving wheel. That's my steering wheel. Yeah, that's your big bet. <laughs> yeah, that's, your, that's my that's bet. bet. I that's yeah, bet. I like that bet. I'm with you. Yeah. All right. So we're gonna we're gonna end there, but I'm excited. I'm excited for this uh, this series, and uh, and thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. All right. See ya, everyone.